Welcome to part two of... Part two of the last part <laughs> of our discussion of the end of Butler's gender trouble. Uh, moving on to Monique Wittig, which is a great name. All right, I just want to point out one thing in this chapter. Okay. Butler says that if sex and gender are radically distinct, then it does not follow that to be a given sex is to become a given gender. In other words, woman need not be the cultural construction of the female body, and man need not interpret male bodies. Okay? Again, the sex is the fact. Earlier in this uh, chapter, she says, quoting Beauvoir, that sex is immutably factic. Um, and gender is the cultural construction of that fact. And again, she says, ways of culturally interpreting the sex body are in no way restricted by the apparent duality of sex. Now, this is where, again, we've already mentioned this, but I want to bring it up. Like, this just is not convicting to me. Um, the fact that there's a distinction, right? They're not the same. Sex and gender does not preclude some relationship of necessity between them. And that seems to be what she's trying to say, and it just doesn't fit. It's like, yeah, there's tons of things that are distinct that are nevertheless involved in necessary relationships. Like that's, mm -hmm. I mean, even maybe most obviously in the material world, it's like, I don't know. Uh, Cause and effect. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I thought of a, a little thought experiment to show how we're not actually satisfied with this kind of quick argument that Butler keeps giving um, in, when we hear it in other categories. So I don't think we would say this about race or ethnicity. Um, so if I'm from North America, I could make the same like fact versus cultural expression of the fact distinction, which would be analogous That's to sex true. and gender, right? So I could say, all right, the fact is I'm from North America. I was born here. I was raised here. Mm -hmm. Okay. But this is distinct from the variable const cultural construction of being North American, right? I have a mere, I'm quoting Butler here, uh, that there's a myriad of possibilities of cultural meaning occasioned by this fact. And you'd agree, like there's no limit to the ways to be North American. However, if I were to say that, okay, so my, the fact about myself is from, I'm from North America, but my cult cultural interpretation of this is that I'm Chinese and I'm going to dress and look and, you know, maybe, maybe even get surgery to appear more Chinese, dye my hair, etc. There'd be a certain stutter in the argument, not only because it seems horribly offensive, uh, <laughs> but the reason it seems horribly offensive is because we, um, ha we have never posited some kind of um, infinite radical freedom uh, in the relationship between the fact and the cultural expression of the fact. The very, the very notion of an expression is that it's an expression of something. It's intentionally exactly. related to what it's an expression of. And so there's a limit to it. I can't just express it in any way. Similarly, if I were to say, um, you know, that the cultural expression African need not to be an interpretation of particularly African bodies or people from Africa, but in fact can be attributed to some other body, say a white North American, we would find this again, deeply Weird. problematic because um, it just seems, it just seems obviously wrong. Um, and the reason that this seems to work with sex and gender, I think is because uh, it's, it's more confusing and it's more fashionable, <laughs> but we, we would, we would, um, I think obviously say, no, there is a limit of cultural interpretation that is limited by the thing that you're culturally interpreting. And, you know, you can see this within sex and gender as well, because it's all well and good to say like, okay, I uh, interpret the facticity of masculinity by like 
you know, wearing these types of clothes or speaking in this sort of manner or, hey, why not have masculinity or maleness, you know, figured in a female body? That all works to a certain extent until you say something like, okay, I have the cultural fact uh, or, or the, the, the mute fact of being the male sex. And my cultural interpretation of this is to surround myself with half-empty paint cans. <laughs> so there's like, suddenly there's a stutter again, because the immediate, the mind is immediately trying to like sexualize what I just said in some way. Like, okay, well, what is the, what is the link, right? Between yeah. the paint cans and some notion of, but my point is the reason we're trying to do that is because we know it that follows. it's an expression of something. So yeah. we're looking for a relationship of following, uh, follow, the gender following from sex. And since we can't find it, that's the joke. That's why it's absurd. I mean, I think this is the same with like people that, you know, want to say that like, you know, even sexual attraction is like open to any number of possible perversions. And like, I just think it's not true. It's, it's a, maybe there's an infinity of expressions, but it's a limited infinity. It's infin mm -hmm. infinity with bounds, which is why it's like, yeah, certain things I guess could appear to be sexually attractive, but like, um, you know, Probably not like being hit by a car, for instance. Like there's a limit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so sex and gender are related. And this is what's interesting to me is that the church, the Catholic church has made this its only real magisterial sort of commitment in this fight. Um, I mean, that's not true. There's a lot of, obviously, everything we're claiming is that it, the church has something to say about this. But the one where they really address queer theory and gender theory is to say you can't actually split these radically. And I think they're, I think that's just correct. Um, so just to say dissatisfied with this and because of that, I think ultimately dissatisfied with where she's going, which is this kind of r really begins her discussion of, um, performativity. Well, she takes a, a ride through Monique, Monique Wittig first. Do you want me to explain Monique? Yeah, I don't I don't have much to say about that section. Okay, I'll be I'll just be very quick that it's a similar argument that we've heard before Wittig thinks, but it's a little more like fiery and violent. She thinks that um Oh yeah, that's right. She thinks that sex um is a fiction produced very directly to um um limit all of the desires and feelings and things that precede it to reproductive behavior. Um, so she's, she's sort of arguing this from a lesbian perspective. Um, so she says, for instance, that to be male is not to be sexed um, because to be sexed is always a way of becoming particular and relative and males within the system participate in the form of the universal person. So for Wittig, female sex does not imply some other sex as in the male sex. The female sex implies only itself and meshed as it were in sex. Um, so again, it's this, it's this idea um, that men have essentially created a trap in which we're pretending that there's sexual difference, there's male and there's female, but really it's just an, a way of dominating one class of people. Um, we dominate one class of people by um, making them the particular, the sexual, Mm -hmm. um, for the sake of reproduction, whereas we are the universal. Um, so she thinks that any 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 deliberate destruction of heterosexual norms is um, revolutionary because you are defying this um, intentional 
restriction of sexual behavior into heterosexual norms. Um, the critique of this is, again, what you might expect, that Wittig says, or Butler says, that the presumption is still this universal human. Um, so she says, the, the speaking I, the ego, assumes godlike dimensions within Wittig's discussion. This pri privilege to speak I establishes a sovereign self, a center of absolute plenitude and power. This uh, speaking establishes the supreme act of subjectivity. This coming into subjectivity is the effective overthrow of sex, and hence the feminine. Um, and a universally rational, equal human beings is the real thing, and everything else is the fiction. Which, again, Butler's just going to say, well, that's just another posited construction. Fair? I think so. That leads us to, I think, the, the most interesting section. What you're all here for. Section four, bodily inscriptions, performative subversions. Yeah. So let's just read the beginning of this because I think it's helpful. Uh, so she writes, it's on page 128, categories of true sex, discrete gender, and specific sexuality have constituted the stable point of reference for a great deal of feminist theory and politics. These constructs of identity serve as the points of epistemic departure from which theory emerges and politics itself is shaped. So she's basically saying uh, we've, we've begun by assuming that there is uh, a fact to sex, that there is discrete and different gender, uh, that there are specific kinds of sexuality. This has been the ground for all of our uh, feminist political conversations. Okay. But is there a political shape to women, as it were, that precedes and prefigures the political elaboration of their interests and epistemic point of view? So that's going back to her original critique in chapter one. Is there a category of woman whatsoever? Mm -hmm. And it's from here that she moves on and you get, uh, I think this is the clearest sense where you actually get her own opinion. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I remember <laughs> reading this the first time, just like section after section. So, so what do you think? So, so what do you think? Still don't know. Okay, still can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what she thinks. She she uh, she thinks the soul is the prison of the body. <laughs> yeah. um, well, really, that's Foucault. Um, so what she she does is she ends up bringing us to a place where we are uh, troubling identity itself um so not only has she uh troubled the the facticity of sex um and she said that gender is this social construct um but the fact that we take this social construct and now i internalize it what does that mean uh is is that really uh, real identity at all? What is the uh, ontological status of the internal identity? Me, myself, I, yeah. uh, or my gender? Yeah, and she's going to say in this first part, before she gets into performativity, um, she's going to, as you might expect, just describe the idea of an interior identity as an illusion. Um, and also as only really produced through enmity. So she has a long sort of discourse on this um, where she says that 
the way we um, create the set, like you, you got to ask yourself why she thinks this. I mean, again, it's materialism. Like mm-hmm. there is no inside, there's no interior, there's no spiritual space. Um, so that when we have some sense that within us, there is an identity within us, there is a gender, which is, you know, expressing itself through various forms or parts that itself must be a construction that itself must be an illusion. So, um, how do we attain that illusion? Again, it's not so much through, um, you know, just being fooled. It's by, um, it's by establishing ourselves in relation to something else that we reject. So it's more proper to say that any, any experience of identity, not any real identity, but any experience of identity is really, um, the, the repudiation of some other. Um, so she says that the boundary of the body as well as the distinction between internal and external is established through the ejection and transvaluation of something originally part of identity into a defiling otherness. Um, it's a repulsion that founds and consolidates uh, identities along sex, race, sexuality, axes. She's quoting someone else here, um, Iris Young. And then she says what constitutes um, the division between inner and outer worlds is a border board, um, and, boundar- and boundary tenuously maintained for the purposes of social regulation and control. The boundary between the inner and outer is confounded by those excremental passages in which the inner effectively becomes outer, and this excreting function becomes, as it were, the model by which other forms of identity differentiation are accomplished. Um, So inner and outer become this achievement of the individual who's not really inner and outer. So even like Pope John Paul II will talk about man as a synthesis between subjectivity and objectivity, interiority, exteriority. Um, That's being denied here. And what's being claimed is you get that illusion of an interior by um, sort of declaring something that's really just part of your individual, I mean, it's, I don't think it's totally coherent, but basically you're just saying I'm not something. Um, and that's how you establish an interior identity. So you eject something. Uh, this is most obvious in the case of some of the thinkers that we've already read that think that the way male identity is established is by the not female, by saying you're not female and rejecting that. Yeah, the so way that the heterosexual is established is by the not homosexual and vice versa. So identity is really an external reality that I have convinced myself is an internal reality, mm-hmm. which is why she's able to uh, agree with Foucault with the idea of, um, I mean, he's just being provocative and, and switching uh, the Christian imagery. So instead of uh, this idea, and this isn't technically Christian, but the soul being imprisoned by the body or being within, it's just flipped. The soul is the prison of the body. Um, this It's this external reality that's really on the outside that is now constricting me. But then it's weird because it, it is it just has these internal movements. I don't know how you <laughs> avoid the eye. <laughs> yeah. So this is where we get into performativity, I think, at this point, which is her idea of what gender is. So she says that there is no ontological status of gender uh, apart from its various acts. That what gender is, is a performance. Mm -hmm. She says that. Um, And 
not only a performance, but a continual performance. So it's a ritual performance. So it's kind of a, a liturgical, social, public act. She says, in other words, acts, gestures, and desires produce the effect of an internal core or substance, but produce this on the surface of the body through the play of signifying absences that suggest but never reveal the organizing principle of identity as a cause. So insofar as I do things again and again, there's this presumption that it comes from an interior identity, but it doesn't. I'm, I'm literally just doing something again and again. Mm -hmm. Such acts, gestures, enactments generally construed are performative in the sense that the essence or identity that they otherwise purport to express are fabrications manufactured and sustained through, through corporeal signs and other discursive means. That the gendered body is performative suggests that it has no ontological status apart from the various acts which constitute its reality. Okay, so there's no female behind the female expressions. There's no male behind the male things that you do or the male parts, right, that we say make up a male. It's there's, just a bundle of expressions. Right, which in some ways is just saying what she said from the beginning, which is that she's a materialist, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but with this addition that we can effectively create the illusion of the presence of interiority, of a essence, of an identity from which all these things come, uh, just by repeating them. Um, and I mean, it's a little more complicated than that'll give um, because she also thinks that we're obliged to do this. So it's not just like, you know, again, we don't just sit there and like, hmm, what shall I become? What should I repeat a hundred times and convince everyone that I am? She's saying that like you are born required to do this. And sometimes you hear this from like the more liberation minded people that like, mm -hmm. don't make a child wear this or that because he's basically just repeating a habitual action that eventually will appear to him as an identity that doesn't really exist. And he needs to be free. And so uh, I don't know what you do at that point, but you hear that sometimes. But Butler's going to say, no, that's silly. I mean, you, you have to identify with a male and female or male or female according to both the psychic laws that she's mentioned, but also according to um, the power dynamics of society in which only those that appear to be properly male or female and orientated towards reproduction are going to be allowed a real existence. So the prohibition mandates performance. This is, I think, important because sometimes you can get the sense that when she suggests performativity, it's the liberating thing. Like, You're right. You know what I mean? When it's not, it's the thing you must do. I mean, she's coming from Foucault who's describing these sort of activities as sub ordination like from discipline and punish it's it's the um you are obliged to create this illusion of identity um and then her question now is okay given that what can we do to resist i mean we can't jump there quite yet but i think that that's that's crucial to not read into performativity what a lot of conservatives i find do is they read that and they think like oh well you just think it's all like a a play, right? Like Yeah, the goal the goal is not to prove that gender is performativity so that I can be whatever I want. It's an explanation of oppression. Yeah. Yeah. And so what to do about this oppression she uh, runs into on page 138. Uh although the gender meanings taken up in these uh parodic styles are clearly part of hegemonic misogynistic misogynist culture, they are nevertheless denaturalized and mobilized through their parodic recontextualization. 
so I guess we kind of jumped over parody a little bit. Yeah. That's, that's an important part. Yeah, so what she thinks you can do is reveal the lie that there is an identity that your various parts and gestures and you know habits are expressions of. And the way she thinks you can reveal that is through parody. Um, now, parody has a particular meaning for Butler, and but she does link it to drag performances, right? So like a, you know, a man dressing up as a woman, although obviously... We can just read that little troubled. paragraph. I don't know what she's quoting. Um, but it says, at its most complex, drag is a double inversion that says appearance is an illusion. Drag says, my outside appearance is feminine, but my essence inside the body is masculine. But mm -hmm. at the same time... It symbolizes the opposite inversion. My appearance outside, my body, my gender is masculine, but my essence inside myself is feminine. Mm -hmm. And then later she says, uh, in imitating gender, drag implicitly reveals the imitative structure of gender itself, as well as its contingency. So, you know, the way I would put it like this, if I, if I wanted to imitate a woman, so then I'll do certain things, you know, I'll make certain gestures. I'll fix my hair in a certain way, such as it is. Now, this is ridiculous, obviously. But what Butler is saying is when I do that, um, and obviously within like a full drag gear, I could probably do it more effectively. What's not the case is that I'm providing like a convincing illusion because obviously there'd be nothing interesting. Or Yeah, that's right. It, it would simply be like, oh, there's a woman, right? No, no, mm -hmm. that's not what I'm doing. What I'm showing is this thing that we have all uh, expected to be a man successfully to some extent um, making a image or a display of a woman. Mm -hmm. It's the very not achievement that's important here because if it was fully achieved, it wouldn't be remarkable. But in the not achievement, what Butler argues is that you realize that women who are perceived as women are simply doing the same sort of things in order to achieve what for them appears to be natural, etc. So our ability to look at the person in drag and say, oh, there's this distinction between your acts your gestures, your bodily movements, and who you really are mm -hmm. is not, and I don't think this is of any necessity, I think Butler's wrong here, but it's not to say, oh, um, this affirms the, the sort of authenticity of women who really are women. Rather, the man who wears the clothes, appears as the woman, shows that the way that women appear as women always is... Also by essentially doing drag. Yeah, everyone's doing drag because there's no such thing as identity. You're just, you're just creating the appearance. Mm -hmm. um, Which is why she says in the the quote that we uh, read earlier, because again, she doesn't think that you can get outside the the structures that be. You are, are thrust into a world that already has these categories. Yeah. You you yourself have no access to a pre-discursive you. Yeah. Um, so whatever it is that you do, you have to participate in misogyny. Uh, you have to participate, um, in a hegemonic culture. Um, but what you, you can do is do parody, which will denaturalize these things that we assume were natural. So mm -hmm. when you have an instance of drag, it reveals that this is all contingent. Um, that's just a, a, a bundle of expressions, that we have given an ontology to. And so at the very least, what you're doing is revealing the thing that we thought was real is not actually real. So even though you can't act, you can't escape uh, the, the reference to the original binary uh -huh. ever because that's what you're stuck with. Given, yeah. um, 
you you can recontextualize it. You can denaturalize it, or you can yeah. You deconstruct. can say you can say. So she says at some point the parody is of the very notion of an original. So you're giving the lie to the supposed originality of the natural woman, the natural man, by uh, quote unquote unnaturally appearing as a woman or unnaturally appearing as a man. She says further on. I mean, and I, I just want to say this much: like we have to understand that some in a similar way that um, within Butler's thought, the only way you have any identity is by the exclusion of the other. It's also true of her politics in the sense that the only subversion you have is not the assertion of any positive truth or anything real. Um, she says that, what does this do? What does parody do? Well, it, it says um, it deprives hegemonic culture and its critics of the claim to naturalized or essentialist gender identities. So it's a little bit circular. It's like it's like why do drag? Well, because drag proves that I'm right, <laughs> uh, in some way, and it and it says that other people are fools. The joy, and she even says the laughter that that drag inspires. Now I I doubt this actually. I haven't been to a drag show, but I do doubt this in some ways. That the laughter that's inspired is precisely the um, revelation of the lie that that other people are telling. It's a sort of um, you know, a burst of, of scornful laughter, that what's really happening is the mockery of women that think that they're really women and the mockery of men that think they're really men in, in drag. It's like a sort of revelatory move where all the enjoyment really comes at crushing um, the fool who's wrong, uh, which sounds to me a little bit negative, I would say. <laughs> Just a tad. But that is what she's offering. I mean, that's why this is, you know, she, she began this whole book with saying, like, how do we do feminism? And you know, like it or not, this is Butler's answer. You do feminism by just showing by whatever means you can that um, essentialists are wrong. Which, in the end, she ends up... Uh, she she sees... She sees that you're essentially creating a new power structure in doing that. Right. We'll, we'll save it for the conclusion. Um well, I can and say, probably a little bit of next time too, unless we want to jump there now. Well, I want to say a few more things on on um, performativity. Um, one is that we've uh, described performativity as a certain liturgy, liturgy, um, and I think that you know, from the Catholic perspective, you might ask something like, "Well, where is this true?" Like, because it's not crazy; it's not just like nonsense. Um, it has a certain sense to it, like the repetition of acts does seem to form the notion of an identity that's behind the acts. Mm -hmm. um, but is it necessary? Does it really? Maybe just as a suggestion for thought in this regard, I would say the place where this really seems to get fuel from is from the, the philosophy of the virtues and the vices. So what I mean is there is a space within human life where we're not denying metaphysics we're sort of presuming them that nevertheless something like performativity is happening that i think it's actually butler's theory is sort of relying on to make her theory seem more plausible namely that the repetition of virtuous acts does produce virtue a virtuous person so for instance if i am courageous and i have multiple acts of of courage mm -hmm. and i behave like unto a courageous man there is a way in which I produce the appearance of, in fact, being courageous. Like I have now modified my being. I have an identity. Who am I? I'm the courageous man. 
Now, there's a way in which I think this really is an achievement on the level of being. But there's also a way in which you could ask, but what's the content of being courageous? And you would have to say, well, it's a disposition to perform courageous acts. So it's not like you ever get some kind of um, thing thing, or yeah. like mark or like identity that you can sort of separately take apart from the particular acts and consider. It's like, no, 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 it is, you are what you do. You are what you are disposed to do. And repetition of acts does in fact, not on its own, but it is a crucial part in disposing us to more of those acts. Um, and we do quite naturally think of someone as being disposed to particular acts as a quality of their being, like mm -hmm. who they appear to us to be like what. And we do posit this interior that doesn't, um, which like we might just presume on faith is real, but doesn't actually derive its reality from what I've just described there. You know, it, so, so there's a place, I think, in a similar way that through vice we establish habits in which we become particular um, and appear particular, even though we're still free to act differently. And so there's a certain limit to saying that this is like, you know, it's not like a change in our nature. Aquinas would describe it as like a second nature, but it's not mm -hmm. first nature. So there's a place where Butler's theory makes sense, and it just seems like her object is wrong, to my mind. Yeah, I, I, I think it does make sense in the context of virtue because well for her performativity uh it has this this negative tone to it because anything that you perform is always illusion right but from a catholic perspective because we participate in god and we repeat um like we image his creativeness we can actually create with performance mm -hmm. in in the sense of virtue like by doing these performances i am actually making this a real and true reality about myself so she denies that performativity will get you anything other than appearance and a lie but there are places in which that's precisely how we image our creator mm -hmm. doing it in these right. many ways i think that's right the other thing that i think is worth pointing out is i am just not sure How the parody is supposed to work? Yeah, because it, it seems like this. And I'm really taking a broad, a really broad scope. So I'm thinking cosmically here. Okay, because if Cosmic it's true parody. that we are in a material cosmos and the only mm -hmm. meanings, um, there's no authenticity in terms of meaning. It's just our own constructions of things. Okay, so we have a sort of divorce, a, a radical divorce from anything as given, anything as intelligible. Um, then it seems this problem that I don't understand how within this universe parody could exist. What I mean is the notion of parody requires a notion of the authentic, the true, the original. I mean, Butler has said this. It's parody is of the notion of the original. But what I'm trying to figure out is how in a cosmos where that's not real mm -hmm. do you ever get the notion of the original? And it's not sufficient to say, well, powers in whatever format lie to you and say there is this original human that you should be or this original man or original woman that's not sufficient because in order for the lie to be believable it has to appear to be true mm -hmm. and if it appears to be true it's because it has some sort of referent um, to a reality that we have some capacity for experience of but the a priori assumption of materialism is that we don't have the referent mm -hmm. there's nothing in the cosmos that is original 
that is authentic, that is given, that is true. So how do you have parity within a cosmos in which like parity relies on not being the original, but that's a notion that I think isn't possible to people that live in a materialist. Yeah, cosmos. you just have an effect of an effect of an effect and effect and, and onto right. infinity. And then you never actually get to a cause anywhere. Yeah, it seems like an infinite regress of parity. If it's all parity all the way down, I don't think you can have parity because parity requires the notion of an original. Mm -hmm. um, and which is just to say, you know, a parity is a parity of something, right? A parity is has an intentional structure. Um, and I don't think that... Um, I think that this gets clouded because we think of it in terms of like, well, you know, it, it's an illusion, right? It's an illusion of originality. And so then we say, okay, so it's not real. So then that makes sense out of that. It's just an illusion of some... Mm -hmm. But the very structure of illusion is the same as the structure of parity. For something to be an illusion, it requires the notion of the real. So what I mean is this. If I say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you all see this green ball floating in the, in the air, but it's really just an illusion. The only way that I can even posit that as a phenomenon within this universe is if I'm saying that there's, there's a real there's a reality, which mm -hmm. is the ball is not there, which I compare to the appearance, which is the green, the green ball is there. And then in the disjunction between the two, you say, well, then this must be an illusion. So my point is that we're describing a universe in which neither parity or illusion seems possible. I don't see how it could arise out of, out of this world of simply material flux in which everything is just a construct. Um, because you couldn't even convince people that, well, whatever. Okay, I think I've said it <laughs> enough time. So I have a, like a very like scaled back problem with how do you even get a world like this? Yeah, how do we get into this problem in the first place? But I also um, have a very particular social problem with this, which is I don't understand why this wouldn't also be a defense of wearing blackface. That is a good point. Because think about it. It's like, okay, what are we doing? We're saying that... Um, when in drag, someone dresses up as a woman, there's a subversive reality that we like here because they're showing that, in fact, this claim of something being, you know, just natural is, in fact, wrong. That women constitute themselves as women by various performative acts in the same way that the drag queen constitutes himself as woman with various performative acts that it's just all performance. So I don't, I don't see a particular reason where you couldn't say, you know, a, a white person dressing up to look like a black person isn't doing the same thing. Like, oh, you think that, um, you know, race is this sort of real essential, thing. real yeah. thing. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you that it's not. And then when you get mad at me saying like, oh, but you're, I can tell that you're not really a black person, I just say, aha, see, that's the point. <laughs> and all of our constructions of black people are in fact just um, the positing of this illusory real for the sake of power, for the sake of some particular end. So let's trouble it. Let's get subversive. Let's do some parody here. Let's have, you know, minstrel shows, but in, in whatever, <laughs> you know. So you, you I, I don't understand why within sex and gender this is totally kosher and subversive and cool. But the moment that we talk about race, it's like totally inappropriate and offensive. And I think what the thing, the thing that I really think is happening is that we just don't believe of race what we believe of 
sex and gender. But I don't see a reason why a a good queer theorist wouldn't say, hey, we should. The only reason that we don't get behind blackface is just because it, for various reasons, doesn't seem to be as effective. Like we're not there yet. But if it's just another identity that's, you know, imposing itself on a material flux, then there's no there's no actual substantial reason for not having um, blackface as a means of parody and subversion of hegemonic norms. It's just that it, you know, it might not work quite yet. We need another 20 years. Yeah, I don't think she'd be able to get herself out of that one. Willing to see her try. Always happy to have people on the show. That'd be very exciting. (laughs) Okay, so those are my two critiques of performativity such as it is. Um, I hope that I can get those into essays that are not as, um, you know, off the cuff as that. Uh, what else? With that, we should move from parody to politics. Parody, that's what she does. Title of our conclusion. Uh, <laughs> man, there's things I really love <laughs> in this section. Um, okay. Uh, this is coming from the first paragraph. I began with a speculative question of whether feminist politics could do without a subject in the category of women. At stake is not whether it still makes sense <laughs> strategically or transitionally to refer to women in order to make represent, uh, representational claims on their behalf. The feminist we always uh, is always and only a, a phantasmic construction. Uh, and then she goes on to say, but that the tenuous phantasmic status of the we, so the fact that there is no actual category, however, is not a cause for despair, or at least it is not only a cause for despair. (laughs) So I'm glad that she grants that. Uh, so there are no identities, there are no categories, but fear not, you need not only despair because there are some things we can do. Um... So the the fools believe that we have to assume identity first in order to do politics. But you don't have to do that. Um, Yeah. You don't need a a notion of the agent or the I or a fixed identity Mm -hmm. in order to do some troubling. Yeah. Um, You can just use these things as it's convenient. You know what I mean? And there's a great line on page... 145 that I think um, encapsulates what she thinks needs to happen. So she says, there is no self that is prior to the convergence or who maintains integrity prior to its entrance into this conflicted cultural field. So there is no prediscursive self. There is only a taking up of the tools where they lie where the very taking up is enabled by the tool lying there. So you're stuck in this world that has these uh, languages, uh, uh, compulsion to certain performative acts. All you have to work with are the tools that are there. Mm -hmm. Just use them. Um, Do parody. uh, Trouble things. Your goal is not to create uh, actual categories of identity. It's just to show that the categories that we have are not actually real. Yep. And then um, her goal is subversive laughter, she says. There's a subversive laughter in the uh, effect of, para- I don't know if it's parodic. Parodic? Yeah, I kind of guess on that. <laughs> Parody-like practices in which the original, the authentic, and the real are themselves constituted as effects. Um, so you're laughing at fools. 
Um, but you know better, but you also can't get out of the constructions of fools. You still have to use those tools as they are lying. So what are the tools? Well, the tools are a sexual binary. Um, and you see this, right? So I, I want to point to how I think reading this sort of what might appear just as a um, very despairing and kind of nihilistic conclusion by Butler is at the very least kind of what we do today. Um, and we'll get into this more, but, but when she says that all we can do is rely on the sexual binary um, and then sort of subversively trouble its, um, its claim to being essential um, without ever getting beyond the terms and the language that it, that it has developed. I think that's a fair description of what we are doing when we try to like, for instance, multiply gender identities and then just like identify as different things. Um, all of the intelligibility of any given gender identity obviously depends on a reference to the sexual binary. So mm -hmm. you've spoken about this, like if you're post-gender, it means that you have to have gender in order to be post something. I mean, if you're, um, you know, third gender, then you're talking about a binary that precedes it. If you're, uh, you know, a transgender man, then obviously you need a description of man that a transgender can modify. Like mm -hmm. in, in any case, there's reference to the binary. And so what's being done is just a troubling of the con saying that this is contingent because we can do this in a bunch of different ways. What's not being done is the achievement of any particular new identity that escapes um, the sexual binary or that has some positive existence, which just goes back to like, this is enmity politics. This is war. What is not happening is utopia. What is not happening is some good outside of this sort of Christian sort of construct. Yeah. And she, she even says essentially that you can't achieve the utopia because I think what the utopia is, is that all identities are included, are recognized, are intelligible. Mm -hmm. There's a place for them in society. There are no limits. Everyone is free. Yeah. Um, but she says, and surely parody has been used to further a politics of despair, one which affirms a seemingly inevitable exclusion of marginal genders from the territory of the natural and the real. So uh, when when you're doing these kinds of politics, you have to exclude people, really any person who right. believes that their marginal gender identity belongs to the natural and the real, that I have a natural and real gender identity. Yep. We have to exclude that as also being a part of the fools, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which is really fascinating. Yeah, no, there's no hope for, for liberation here because she's already established that the only way that you get identity at all is by the exclusion of some other. Um, so we're involved in this economy where in order to be myself, I need some other person that I'm not, this sort of enemy, um, which is oddly like a, a, like in a funhouse mirror kind of way. It's what Catholics will often describe about one of the meanings of the, the sexual binary is that it, it sort of has a pedagogical meaning because I can only understand male in reference to the female and the female can only understand reference uh, in reference to the male. So there's this mutual gift of intelligibility. But mm -hmm. when you step outside of the binary where these things are considered as given, then um, it's not a gift that gives you your intelligibility. It's your opposition to something that you're not that gives it intelligibility. So again, like gender queer. Well, I am that thing that queers gender where gender is the enemy in mm -hmm. some way. Um, yeah, and the other thing that I want to point out just in the sense of like Butler's significance is that when she talks about just picking up the tools where they lie, I think that's actually what you see with a lot of feminism. It's really fascinating to me that 
you know, the actual institutions of, of sort of official feminism, like you think about the UN or something like that, will just with one hand say like it's International Women's Day and we're gonna we're gonna support women around the globe with all of their struggles, and with the other hand say um, gender is a social construct mm-hmm. and a biological male is a woman, and they don't even bother like synthesizing the propositions; they just do them on different days. So one day we're celebrating women, the other day we're celebrating the inability to have a category of woman because any um, body can be um, a woman. And we might think, oh, well, this is so contradictory or this is so you know inconsistent, but that's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is that it works like in either. <laughs> that is cynical. Yeah, I think, yeah, in every instance it works to trouble the idea of um, – the sexual binary being anything but a contingent historical production of, of power. So um, the conclusion of Butler is that there is no ontology or being of gender on which we might construct a politics, uh, which I think um, probably for many people would be surprising because that, that seems like that's not what gender ideology is trying to do. I think most people experience with it on the ground is that here's these people trying to tell me that there's all these different identities Mm -hmm. that these things are real and they belong to the natural Mm -hmm. they belong to the realm of ontology and it turns out that it's just not the case Mm -hmm. there is there is none and then uh her last sentence of the book is a question and i think that perfectly encapsulates (laughs) the entirety of the text yeah it's not, it's not even that exciting of a question. It's just what other local strategies for engaging the unnatural might lead to the denaturalization of gender as such. It's, it's basically a, a practical question. So what else could we do practically in so, your locale? So dude, Judith, you're the one writing the book. You tell you me. T- <laughs> why, why, all of a sudden I feel obligated to like answer it. Okay, so, so why read Judith Butler? Again, I think because, you know, her... Um, description of gender is very a very powerful one a very negative one um and one that really has influenced um our world today and i think that any uh both response and also any takeaway from from judith butler is going to have to reckon with um with that effect um it's not, I think, sufficient to simply say, okay, so this is what Judith Butler says. I'm just going to assert um, a presumption from metaphysics. It's like, but we're in a world that denies the reality of metaphysics. So mm-hmm. either either we say, okay, well, then we're going to take a step back and we're going to say, let's learn metaphysics again. Let's, um, let's show the incoherence of like materialism or something like that. So that's one route. Or we're going to say, okay, given this, what convicts? Given this, what is, where are, I mean, it's, it's odd because within a material, when you're approaching materialism, you just start doing what Butler says you should be doing to the essentialists. It's saying like, well, where does materialism not satisfy? Where does it not work? Where does it show its hand as being not descriptive of our actual experience? So it helps, I think, to have a, a real, I think in the end, consistent materialist description. Because at any point that Butler could have said, this could be liberatory, there's a possible good that we see here, 
she doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, she resists yeah. that temptation to like some new ontological description and just critiques it wherever she finds it. Um, so I, I have a couple takes as well from the text, uh, which is kind of mixed with, well, what can we gain from Judith Butler and what can we gain from postmodernism in particular? Um, so one, one thing that, uh, I was convicted of after reading the text is that without, uh, belief or faith in an intelligible world, then there is no ground for identity as such. Because that's that's as far as she ends up going in the text. She questions all the way down to the I and the subject itself. Um, and so, uh, yeah, in, in, that, in that way, um, belief and faith starts to become uh, the, the ground for all human experience. Like, if I want to believe in a, a real world that has intelligibility... And for me to believe that identity and my experience of identity is real, I have to just take a leap of faith. And this is irrespective of your religion, whether you, um, uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what perspective you're coming from. If you want to function in the world as an identity, you have to have faith that the, the world is intelligible without being able to prove it as such. Um, and then to to bring it back to our original discussion of of kind of how we opened with the dissatisfaction of the the biological argument, I think it 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 shows you that the the biological argument fails within the materialist context. Um, it fails to satisfy because you need faith first at some level in order to find that argument convincing, mm. right? You have to believe that reality is intelligible and that I can know it mm-hmm. or that the way things are, uh, points to how they ought to be, um, that I ought to be consistent with my body or I ought to express things that are consistent with my biological expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I think is a, a more fundamental act of faith about my reality that maybe people don't think of as an act of faith, but it is something Thing that you just assume without having proved it 100%. Yeah, one way to maybe look at this is how within a material world, again, the biological argument can only come to some um, material thing that produces a appearance of a larger-than-itself substantive mm-hmm. whole, uh, man, woman, male, female, and that that's what that's all materialism offers um and that for a lot of people they don't realize i think that they're only they're making an argument that only makes sense in the materialist world when they put mm-hmm. all of their stock in say chromosomes or something as being the thing that makes you a man the thing that makes you a woman um whereas within a non-materialist view um those biological realities become expressions of a prior fact. So this is like the priority of meaning or intelligibility. Like the reason that you have all of these biological realities that all influence each other and are obviously what your gender means and is, is not because if you add up all of those biological realities, you get this thing in a mm-hmm. sort of material way. It's because and then you are intelligibly created as this thing 
all of the biological effects are expressions of the reality um, of your creation. So intelligibility comes first, and that's what gives the various parts their appearance as belonging to that overarching intelligibility. Um, I think that's just a, two different ways of living in the world, I think. Mm -hmm. And that is um, some level, yeah, I do think that is a, um, a question of belief in the original creation, you know. Um, yeah. And then the last point that I wanted to bring up is the common ground that we actually have with the postmoderns. Like, how do you how do you meet these people at the lowest common denominator? What is it that like we all can agree about reality? Because it seems like we agree about practically nothing. Um, if you don't believe that reality is intelligible, then I can know it. And uh, what I was seeing was that um, even the postmodernist comes up against uh, a limit, comes up against a given. Mm -hmm. And for Butler, the given are are the tools. And we read that quote. Um, and for her, the given world is not the created order itself. It is the the limit of, of language and cultural construction that I was born into. Mm -hmm. So even for the postmodern, you, you still run into the reality of the given in some sense. I didn't choose this. I'm mm -hmm. a part of this. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think we can, what we can actually do is uh, incorporate that insight into our own understanding of our own given nature and actually help us to understand even more deeply the human experience because it's not uh, merely what is given to me are all these, uh, this factual world. Part of what's given to me is the limitation of my own being, how I encounter the world, how I am extremely limited by and dependent on other people and language in order to make sense of my reality. Um, I think it, it gives us a more full picture of what it means to be human, actually. Um, so that's one one insight yeah, that I really it, appreciate it, about the postmoderns. I think you're right to say that. I mean, that the given is still there. It's just, you know, the given comes from man in some way yeah. um, within the postmoderns because you just can't get around the way that the world is constructed to appear. You can only sort of participate in that construction and, and only barely. <laughs> um so it's a effort of conversion in the sense of it's like, well, I want to show you a given that does come from a person, but it is a person that loves you. Yeah. Um, and not just in the sense of God, like, oh, I'm just going to point to God instead of man, but in the sense of God and then people who are godly imitating the original gift in their own passing on of the real of like, this is how the world is. This is how we're building the world. And it's for you. I'm mm -hmm. um, not against you. I mean, what, what, what's at stake here is a, a original presumption of violence or peace. Like the reason that, you know, the postmodern vision seems shrinking in some ways is because they're just presuming that any constructing of the world is always a violence because mm -hmm. every, there's no, it's just material. So every, every subject is sort of doing it against every other subject in some way, some kind of war of all against all. But that in the Christian presumption, like there are constructions that can be peaceful and loving like we can construct the world in a way that's good because the given is not unintelligible to us. It, we can move in accordance with it or against it. So mm -hmm. we, we don't have to yeah. do violence against the given. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I think that's true.
Do you have any other takeaways from the book? Uh, no. Or our agreements with postmoderns? Uh, I think I think that was... I think the only one I would it? add to that is that we can, to an extent, at least appreciate the resistance to tyranny that is implicit in people like Butler in, in postmodernism. Mm -hmm. Like, why is it appealing? Why do people like it? Like, do people like just being told, hey, there's no meaning, you construct it yourself, and you're totally limited in your constructions, and it's all violent, and... I love chaos. All you can do is some parody here and there, and then you die. Uh, I don't think people like that in itself. I think what they like is the fact that that sticks it to the man. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, like, that's where the fuel is coming from, is that we are a society that is almost constitutively organized against being rebellious against tyrannical powers. At least that's the only kind of hero that we can imagine. And I just want to affirm that in some ways, like it's not, it may be as um, immaturely expressed. And I think it very often takes things as tyrannical, which aren't, and then doesn't see real tyrannies, even mm -hmm. as it says it's seeing them. Of course, of course. And, and surely Catholics and everyone is susceptible to error in this regard. But, the fundamental desire to oppose the tyrant um, for the sake of freedom is a beautiful thing. It's like the story of salvation. It's why Christ came in some ways as redeemer. And, and it's the story the Bible tells of the creation of a people who are no longer under the law, um, but are free because the law has become a part of their hearts it really belongs to them it's no longer an extrinsic force from without okay all this is you know something to discuss in more detail it's just to say that what what does a catholic and a postmodern have in common when they sit mm -hmm. together in the room well it's opposition to tyranny and that's a good thing but then the debate of course is who's the tyrant who's the tyrant because usually the postmodern thinks it's you. <laughs> and you think it's the postmodern. No. <laughs> I don't usually think it's the postmodern, actually, because I think that usually the postmodern is directed against, just because that's all there is for the postmodern, human amassments of power that mm -hmm. are unreasonably utilized. So, you know, so in that, I think we can join them, but uh, I think we disagree on fundamentals at the same time. Just a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so there it is. I know we skipped over some parts, especially the Freudian bits. Don't worry, we're going to be reading a lot of Zizek, a little bit of Lacan. It's going to get weird, and you will be fully satisfied. In fact, I think we're going to go back to some of these um, psychoanalytic points that Butler makes in those discussions. But what are we doing next? That's not what we're doing next. We are looking back at your right. dissertation. Yeah. Uh, and that'll give us a little bit direction to go. Yeah, so we've been we've been critiquing the postmoderns, but the the beginning part that's in my dissertation, and I want to sort of reveal a little more, is a critique of the liberals, um, is distinct from the postmoderns. So that's what we'll get into next time. So we don't have a book yet, but when we do have another book for you to read, we'll announce it. All right. Well, okay. Join us next time. Bye.